The Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group is an award-winning team with hundreds of successful transactions under their belt. Through their national network, the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group works hard to help families realize the dream of home ownership. As a community advocate, Cynthia Joyner is proud to be the presenting sponsor of Jazz in the Park Huntsville. You can find the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group on the web at CynthiaJoyner.com. Jazz is art that can be portrayed jazz in different mediums via different emotions jazz 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 with Kenny Anderson saxophonist Elon Trotman has quickly become one of jazz's most thrilling and emotive performers as he continues to stand out and push boundaries as a composer, performer, teacher, and recording artist. Trotman's playing, though inspired by Grover Washington Jr., Kirk Whalum, and Najee, displays his own fresh ideas and distinctive tone. So much so that the New England Urban Music Awards and the Barbados Music Awards both named him Jazz Artist of the Year on multiple occasions. My guest on the Jazz with Kenny Anderson podcast platform, brother Elon Trotman. What's up, man? Greetings. I hope you're doing well, man. Talk to me, man. How you doing? I'm doing well. Um, today is a beautiful, I guess we could should say winter day in Boston, but it's about 60 degrees and sunny. So uh, enjoying the weather and enjoying the day off from teaching. Well, that's a good thing. And we're going to get a chance to talk about all of those things that consume your life and define who you are. And this is an opportunity for us to do that. But one of the things I always like to do is take it all the way back. And when we take it all the way back with you, we actually take it all the way back to Barbados. Tell me a little bit about what it was like being born and raised in that country and the experience that you had as a young child growing up. Uh, Barbados is definitely uh, a unique place to to grow up, you know, uh, being a a small Caribbean island of uh, just around a quarter million people population. Uh, English-speaking island uh, was uh, previously a British colony. So all through all of my uh, middle school and high school, I had to wear, you know, a uniform. I had to wear a tie every day, shirt tucked in, uh, very, you know, uh, formal way of uh, attending school and learning the Queen's English and all that good stuff. Um, but as far as life on the island, um, like most islands, you would find that there's a very laid back environment, which kind of spills over to people's personalities, the hospitality, um, just a very laid back, uh, happy, you know, kind of uh, energy that you find everywhere you go on the island. Um, as far as music, um, obviously a lot of local music, a lot of calypsos and reggae's, steel drums, very festive. Uh, native music. Um, so you definitely hear a lot of those influences in, in my compositions um, because that's just a big part of who I am. How did you get into the music? Well, my parents kind of insisted that I took uh, some piano lessons around the age of 10. Um, they weren't formally trained, but they saw that as a, an opportunity for me to just start getting some kind of formal training 
and discipline, you know, getting into a weekly regimen, taking lessons, learning how to read music. And eventually we all discovered that I had a special gift uh, where everyone else that was learning these same uh, songs and pieces, I was able to retain them a bit quicker and also start to improvise with these melodies that were giving me, you know, some Mozart and Beethoven pieces. And I was starting to to improvise at a a young age. And that's when we discovered that, you know, I had a a keen ear for music and just a special gift. And that led me to, you know, join the middle school band. Uh, the, The only instrument that was available at the time was the French horn which is a brass instrument. It's not really a lead instrument. It's more of a sectional instrument. So you're kind of in the background, you know, and uh, eventually I, you know, waited for that opportunity for the saxophone to become available because I was starting to pay attention to, you know, the, the parts that the saxophone players were playing. They were taking the solos and the lead parts, the melodies, And also right around that time, I also kind of stumbled across some videos of people like Najee and Grover Washington Jr. on the cable television network. I believe it was uh, BET or Bet on Jazz. We would get that um, uh, broadcasted in Barbados. So I stumbled across some music videos of Grover playing in this all white linen, you know, outfit on the beach and the wind is blowing and like the shirt's moving in slow motion, man. And (laughs) And he's playing like these really vocal and lyric, lyrical phrases on the saxophone. And that really caught my attention. And the rest is history. And how could you resist something like that, right? <laughs> That's better than a French horn. <laughs> no offense oh, to the brass players, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, you, of course, uh, was attracted to that beautiful instrument which i think the saxophone is and uh for all the great reasons that you gave how did you get into defining yourself as a jazz musician so once i once i uh began studying at berkeley college of music and i I have to mention the government of barbados the ministry of education who provided me that opportunity to to be accepted to berkeley and to have a full scholarship uh we know education is not cheap these days so uh, the, the government of Barbados gave me a full scholarship, which allowed me to, to attend Berkeley. I applied. I was accepted. And it wasn't until I got to Boston in 1998 that I discovered jazz, well, straight ahead jazz, really. Um, up until that point, I was really only exposed to the contemporary smooth jazz artists like Kenny G, Kirk Whalen, Gerald Albright, Najee. And uh, once I got to Boston and I discovered, you know, the first record that I bought was Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. And that just, you know, it just took me in a totally different direction because I wasn't exposed to that, you know, straight ahead music and bebop, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane as a teenager growing up in Barbados. So I started to develop an interest in traditional jazz and I went back you know, to the music of the 60s and 70s and the the 50s and try to study that language of of bebop and the history of jazz. And then I started fusing the two styles together, the contemporary jazz with traditional jazz, straight ahead jazz, which is actually something that Grover 
also took pride in doing because he had a, a huge level of respect for the forefathers of jazz, you know, the Hank Mobley's and the Dexter Gordon's and the Sonny Rollins. And you could hear Grover definitely pay homage to them in his improvisational styles. So that's how it all began for me. And I think uh, once I started to record and write my own music, I started to try different things that would allow me to showcase and, and pay homage to all of these different influences, musical influences and styles that I've been exposed to over the years. And now that academic journey has come full circle because you are now an associate professor at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Tell me what that experience has been like for you. Full circle, like you said, I graduated in 2001 with a degree in music education. Got hired in the Boston Public Schools. I taught as a music teacher in the elementary schools for about 10 years. One day I got a call from Peter White asking me to go to Europe with him to do uh, a run of shows in the London area as a saxophonist. I retired or took a sabbatical from teaching in Boston Public Schools. And once I started touring with Peter, I started to get calls from other people to go on the Dave Cos cruise, um, to tour with Jonathan Butler uh, and, you know, do um, some, some sessions with people like Earl Klug and Keiko Matsui. Um, so, you know, I never had a chance to return to the classroom uh, like I had a, a initially planned on. Um, so I've been touring and recording for the past 10 to 12 years. And um, just uh, a few months ago, I got the opportunity to return to Berkeley as a member of their faculty. And I am I'm just totally humbled by that opportunity to, to go back and, and, and give back and pay it forward. So uh, I'm enjoying You know, I'm high on music education, and that's a huge part of the festival that we have every year called Jazz in the Park, which I know you're familiar with. It's the Huntsville version, and it was, of course, birthed out of the uh, mind of my very dear friend, the late Bernard Lockhart, who you had a chance to meet and know. Uh, COVID, of course, took his life. The COVID journey over the last few months has been extremely brutal for so many people. Talk to me a little bit about, first of all, the importance of music, music education. And then I want you to talk a little bit about what the journey has been like for you over the last 18 months in this COVID uh, society. Sure. Um, I have a heart for education, um, not only because it was my major uh, in college, but, you know, like I said, being able to take music lessons at the age of 10 not everyone is able to do that for whatever reason. Uh, that actually inspired me to start my own program in Barbados where kids that don't have the resources or the funding to pay for music lessons where they can be provided free of cost or we raise the funds so that they can take these weekly music lessons on different instruments. Um, I, you know, when I was in the Boston Public Schools, I really started to realize the importance of the arts and music education because so much emphasis is, is placed on academics. And I'm a, <laughs> I'm a prime example of one of those kids who did not like math or science. You know, um, I just, I'm a, I'm a creative. And there's a lot of kids out there that are like me that I can identify with who are terrified by numbers or calculus and, you know, geometry and all this stuff. But you give them an a, a art pad and some paint or you give them a, a piece of clay 
and a wheel or you give them a, a piece of wood and some tools you know what I mean? And and they feel confident. They feel like they can express themselves. And that for me, that's what music education is all about. Giving kids an opportunity to discover the fact that, hey, this is something that I'm good at or something I could be good at. And over the past 18 months, of course, as I reflected on the loss of Bernard, somebody that you knew, uh, and then on your own personal journey and the, the challenges that you face over time, we know that immediately when the pandemic hit, it altered the course of the lives of all musicians because we were all shut down. Whatever your profession was, you were shut down. And so you had to not just reflect on that moment, but also bring some meaning and some understanding to what was going on. And at the same time, many of us were being directly impacted because of the, co the COVID pandemic. Talk a little bit about your journey during that 18 months. Uh, there's some positives that came out of it. You know, uh, in addition to the losses, we've all lost loved ones and family members, myself included. I also contracted the virus. It took me a while to recover. Um, you know, I, I couldn't go to the gym for a few months. I couldn't play my saxophone for a few months. You know, I got winded just walking up a flight of stairs. Um, it's like nothing I'd ever experienced before. But as far as the positives, I started to write and compose music probably right around May of 2020, you know, when we realized that we wouldn't be touring and traveling for a little while. And um, I reached out to some friends like uh, Adam Holly and Julian Vaughn, Marcus Anderson, Althea Renee, and uh, they all recorded remotely, but you know, it was, it was really well produced. Uh, Paul Brown mixed the album. So, you know, the album, the whole concept is, you know, uh, uh, creating music that will uplift people and you know, give them the hope that you know there are brighter days to come. And I think I can speak on behalf of a lot of other artists who were inspired to to write music during this 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 you know season that will you know provide some sort of inf uh, inspiration and comfort to to our listeners. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the upside of the pandemic, and it's something that I personally have focused on as well as number one, being a mental health professional, but also. And acknowledging that in the midst of any adversity, there are lessons that we can learn and opportunities that are created because of that. It sounds a little bit like you took that path. Uh, one of the other things that people have talked to me about as it relates to the pandemic was just uh, kind of a reordering of priorities in people's lives, so greater recognition of what's really valuable, what's really important. Um, talk to me about that in the context of family and how you framed family in the context of this pandemic? Well, you know, uh, what we all love has been so viciously and abruptly taken away from us, um, whether it be our jobs or the time that we spend with our families, like traveling, going on trips, vacations, being able to see other family members that are out of town. I haven't seen my father in Barbados in over two years. Um, you know, so it's, it's been a challenging time for all of us, but it has brought people closer together as well, because, um, you know, you can't leave home as much, you, you know, I've seen probably my family's gotten to see me a lot more than they have in the past, because I usually travel at least 30 to 35 weekends out of the year with shows. But since the pandemic, uh, my traveling has uh, decreased significantly. Um, but it really helps you to put things in perspective. Uh, I remember I was coming back from South Africa, Cape Town, 
not the Cape Town Jazz Festival, but a festival in, in the Cape Town area in February of 2020 when everything just kind of shut down. And um, I just remember that feeling of uncertainty, just not knowing what the future was going to hold for anyone. You know, we're fortunate that stuff is gradually reopening and people are still able to attend concerts. You know, the vaccine has provided, you know, some level of hope. Um, but still, it really puts things in perspective and it makes you realize that tomorrow isn't promised and that you really need to, you know, cherish your loved ones and also, you know, live in, live in the moment, you know, um, don't wait to, uh, tomorrow's not promised. Uh, that's the main takeaway that I've, I've learned from this whole lesson. Have you gotten back out on the road again or you're anticipating getting back out on the road? Yeah, I've been touring. Um, actually, uh, my touring season kicked off this past April um, I did the Seabreeze Jazz Festival with Jeffrey Osborne. I did um, some other summer festivals um, in Denver, Colorado. And, and I did the Marcus Anderson's Jazz Festival in Asheville, North Carolina. So, uh, yeah, the touring is coming back. Um, I'm a little more selective, obviously. Um, I'm more comfortable doing the outdoor venues than the indoor jazz clubs. Um, you know, uh, better ear quality and other things that, you know, uh, you don't have to worry about with the outdoor festivals. And then also the international travel, that's definitely stopped for me. I haven't been to Europe. I haven't been to South Africa. I haven't been to the Caribbean since this pandemic. So, uh, or Canada. And those are all places that I love to frequent. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a little different.
That was Elon Trotman, Trade Winds, featuring Peter White on guitar. And now, back to Kenny's conversation with Elon Trotman on Jazz with Kenny Anderson. You have, of course, recorded and performed with a who's who's list of uh, musicians and vocalists and more. Michael McDonald, Roberta Flack. Uh, of course, you mentioned Jonathan Butler earlier and Jeffrey Osborne, Sheila E., Marcus Miller, Will Downing, Jeff Lorber, uh, Peebo Bryson, uh, my man Brian Simpson, good friend of mine, and the list goes on and on and on. But uh, that's what people would talk about on another podcast. I want to talk about you singing the national anthem at a variety of different sports venues and the fact that you are a huge sports fan. You've done the national anthem for a couple of teams that we probably need to discuss, the Boston Celtics and the Boston Red Sox. Now, are you a Celtic fan and a Boston Red Sox fan? I've been converted. You know, when you live in, in the state of Massachusetts or in the New England area, you know, it's very hard to not root for the home teams because uh, all they do is win, 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 win. Uh, mm. I think that's well, see, I root for the, Yeah, right. I got you, brother. But look, I root for the home team, too. I'm from New York City. You know what we're talking about now? Knickerbockers. Giant, <laughs> Giants. Yankees, Giants, Jets. Just name them all, brother. <laughs> <laughs> big rivalry you know, used to be a big rivalry with the Yankees and Red Sox. Yeah, well, listen, it stays. It's still a big rivalry. In fact, the Red Sox took out the Yankees in order to go into the division playoffs. And of course, they lost, which I was very happy about. But getting back to I digress, getting back to the national anthem. Uh, you know, I've kind of fantasized about things in my life, like playing center field, for example, for a Major League Baseball team. But thinking about the national anthem and singing before a big crowd like that, what is that experience like? So playing the national anthem is a little more intimidating than most people realize because it's such a sacred song that is of uh, huge meaning and sentimental value to many people, you know, all of our veterans and service members. So, you know, like I said, there's a level of sanctity when you perform this song. And you also want to make it your own. You know, you want to express yourself and, and perform it. So it's all about trying to find the balance. And, and then the other thing, too, is most of these arenas have anywhere from ten to 20,000 people in attendance. And you can hear a pin drop. You know, people remove their hats. Everyone stands. And you can hear a pin drop. And it's like, wow, 20,000 people are listening and many of them are probably waiting for you to mess up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the funny part about it, man. It's like, um, you know, every, I'm sure everyone's seen that Carl Lewis national anthem rendition <laughs> from, was it the All-Star Game? And he just butchered that thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> Memorable moments indeed for all the wrong reasons, but... Uh... That's got to be quite an honor, first of all, but then uh, quite an experience at the same time to have that opportunity. I want to also acknowledge you as the executive producer and host of the Barbados Jazz Excursion, a jazz and golf weekend getaway that brings over 300 music lovers to the island every Columbus Day weekend. Talk to me a little bit about this event that has brought some amazing performers to the island. Sure. Like I said, the uh, government of Barbados has been... A uh, huge support for me in 
allowing me to attend Berklee College of Music and to make Boston my home away from home. Um, so I try to give back in any way possible. I partner with the Barbados Tourism and Marketing Department uh, to help to support tourism. Uh, and the way we do that is to invite, you know, guests to the island on an annual basis. And we offer them a number of different activities in addition to entertainment. All the hotels benefit, the airlines benefit, the local vendors benefit. And more importantly, uh, we bring people together. The motto of uh, our event is bringing old and new friends together. So uh, whether it be on the golf course, whether it be on an island safari, or whether it be listening to, you know, John uh, Jeffrey Osborne or Will Downing or Najee or Mesa, Alex Bunyan, Marion Meadows, Avery Sunshine, all of these uh, artists that I mentioned are dear friends of mine who come down there not just to, you know, get paid, but they also see the value in what I'm trying to build. Um, you know, being being a, a black man in America, trying to do something positive, and also seeing the charitable component of it, where uh, proceeds also benefit the foundation, which uh, helps to put instruments in in the hands of these uh, kids on the island. So, tell me a little bit about that, because big ups to you for your charitable giving and your vision to be able to establish an opportunity for young people to benefit musically from your gift and the great career that you've had. You are the founder of the Never Lose Your Drive Foundation, a nonprofit that directly funds the Head Start Music Program. Share a little bit about what that is and what the drive was behind developing that. So when I was uh, teaching in Boston Public Schools, we had this program where each kid would get uh, to choose an instrument, uh, a, a saxophone, a flute, a clarinet, a trumpet, from fourth grade to fifth grade. So basically, for two years, they would rotate between those four instruments. Well, actually, no, for fourth grade, they would rotate those instruments. And then for fifth grade, they would pick one instrument and stick with that for their fifth, uh, fifth grade in band. So I kind of use that model um, where we offer the same instruments. Uh, we have tutors that give these lessons. We raise monies to pay the tutors their salaries so parents don't have to come out of pocket. All the instruments were donated by Cannonball Musical Instruments, which is a company based in Salt Lake City who uh, make my saxophones. Uh, they donated generously. And, um, and many people know I also am an avid golfer. So uh, we do a, a celebrity golf tournament. Many of my performers, um, uh, some of them typically play golf. Uh, we've had Mike Phillips. We've had Marcus Johnson, um, Marcus Anderson, Jeff Bradshaw comedian Chris Clark and they've all come out on the links and um, helped to uh, you know raise funds uh, John Starks from the New York Knicks you know he's he's an annual attendee Bernie Williams from New York Yankees he's been one of my celebrity golfers and these guys all support they you know sign autographs and meet with our fans and patrons uh, so it's just a great weekend obviously we haven't done it for the last two years uh, we're hoping that we can come back strong in 2022. This, of course, is, again, one of the reasons why we do what we do here on the ground with jazz in the park, Huntsville, because it's not just about a weekend of music. It's obviously a wonderful experience able to sit out under the nice fall uh, sky and, and hear some amazing sounds and experience community fellowship. But also 
also ask our performers to stay over and do a education masterclass. We also are very honored to be able to introduce our high school students, our middle school students to these performers to inspire them in some way. And what you're doing, of course, is really an extension of that and something that I think is quite substantive. So congratulations on that process. And I hope that you can once again uh, really, you know, start doing the tournament again and, and raising those funds the way you need to be doing it because it provides such an important service for young people. I want to um, ask you about, um, again, you mentioned this earlier, but I want to kind of come back to it for a moment because um, I, I think there's some significance in this in terms of how we move forward. Brighter Days Ahead, the title of this project that you hope to release in 2022. Um, talk to me about the um, elements of this um, project. Uh, you talked about some of the performers, but uh, and you also suggested that the, the project promotes a positive attitude, um, good vibes and more. Um, why is it important at this moment to produce this type of a project for you? I think uh, some of the greatest music that's ever been created and birth has come from a, a certain period in time you know, a certain passage of time that inspired that particular body of work. And I think you're going to see a lot of uh, bodies of work that are coming out of this pandemic as far as compositions and, and albums and, and, and concepts and ideas. So for me, one of the first songs that I wrote um, once I realized I wasn't going to be touring and traveling is a song that I entitled Prayer for Humanity. And when I when that melody was was given to me, because I believe it was given to me, um, you know, regardless if you if you believe in a higher power or not, um, I get songs and ideas from dreams or just from from inspiration that is is beyond me that I can't comprehend. And what I'll do is I'll take my phone and I'll record it. So I don't forget it, you know, if I'm sleeping or just kind of relaxing and I get an idea, I record it so that I can go into the studio and further um, develop that idea. So the song Prayer for Humanity is one of the first songs that came to me. And uh, the melody is just very simple. But again, it came from a place of compassion when I would turn the news on and I would see all of these deaths that were being reported in, in Italy and in different parts of Europe. And I just saw how this pandemic and this virus was impacting the entire humanity, not just uh, United States of America, but everyone on this planet was being affected all at the same time. And that's why I call that song Prayer for Humanity. So there's different moments in the album where you'll hear or feel different emotions. Um, you know, some are celebratory, some are solemn. Um, but in general, like I said, it, it's just a body of work that that came out of that particular season uh, that I was going through at that time in my life. Well, it certainly sounds like something that we all need and could certainly use. So I look forward to embracing that for myself sometime in the near future. Elan, what do you want your legacy to be as you think about the life that you're living now, the things you're investing in, and 
this commitment that you've given to the music space, the education space, uh, the philanthropy space, what do you want your legacy to be? You know, I get asked that question a lot. And, you know, we, we don't know, you know, when our time here on earth will, will conclude. Uh, but I think of people like Grover, the late great Grover Washington Jr. And I think of his legacy. You know, I think of the body of work that he's left behind. I think of how people remember him. People remember him by his smile. People remember him by Mr. Magic and Wine Light. But one of the main things I remember Grover Washington by is, or was his energy. When he hit that stage, his energy, he would be soaked in sweat from the first song. He would leave everything on the stage. He would give it his all. And so, you know, I just try to be myself and however people choose to remember me or my legacy, I just, you know, I want to keep writing, keep putting out music, keep delivering great performances, memorable performances, putting out good energy in the universe, paying it forward so that, you know, there is a next generation of young musicians that can carry on the legacy of, of jazz and, and just great music. And I feel like if that, if I can continue to do that or strive towards that, I feel like I would have uh, succeeded in my goal and my calling and my purpose. You no doubt have a social media presence. You have an opportunity for people to connect with you in virtual spaces. How would people reach out to you and learn more about the work that you're doing and some of the products that you have? I would definitely uh, point people towards my social media. Uh, my Facebook and my Instagram are both under my full name, E-L-A-N-T-R-O-T-M-A-N. And that's also the domain for my website. So all of my tour dates and any upcoming projects, links to the foundation, links to Barbados Jazz Excursion and Golf Weekend. Uh, we're also in the process of planning uh, Jazz and Golf Weekend on Martha's Vineyard on Cape Cod for late June 2022. So uh, there's always something going on in my in my world. Uh, I would love to hear from uh, from your fans and your listeners. Uh, and keep them up to date on what's on the horizon. Well, that sounds awesome indeed. Of course, we've got to work on getting you to Huntsville because we haven't had a chance to do that yet. But uh, we've got to definitely discuss booking a date for you to grace us with your presence right here in the largest city in the state of Alabama. I'm looking forward to it, definitely. All right, Elan. Thank you very much. Elan Trotman with us today on the Jazz with Kenny Anderson podcast, sharing good vibes. That's all I can feel. I feel island vibes today as a consequence of this conversation. And uh, it's all been good, brother. So we thank you for giving us this opportunity to learn a little bit more about you and to get a little inside peek at what makes you tick. Thank you. You're very welcome, man. It was a pleasure talking to you, Kenny. Jazz with Kenny Anderson is a partnership with Jazz in the Park Huntsville and is produced by David Person for David Person Media, LLC. The theme music was written and produced by Kelvin Wooten. 
Damian Malone provides podcast platform management. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Jazz with Kenny Anderson. The Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group is an award-winning team with hundreds of successful transactions under their belt. Through their national network, the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group works hard to help families realize the dream of home ownership. As a community advocate, Cynthia Joyner is proud to be the presenting sponsor of Jazz in the Park Huntsville. You can find the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group on the web at CynthiaJoyner.com.